I've been listening to Peter Egan's stories for years. We've never met, but his columns and features in Road and Track always echoed inside my head as my eyes scanned the printed page. And there's a lot of us out here. Enthusiasts, all. But some have made our way into being auto writers or podcasters or top weird car Twitter accounts to follow. And when we mention influences, Peter Egan comes up over and over again. It was his work, stories that weren't about cars so much as the cars were bit players, a part of the texture, the set dressing. He showed us what you could do with those things we all love, experiences to have, and those stories stuck. And so it was a random auction post on car Twitter that started all of this. And I set it for sale. Everyone seems to love the odd little mid-century European bubble cars. But they're chronically under-contexted, especially now, as the long shadow of World War II and the immediate post-war years fades. So I piped in, as one does on car Twitter, that the Isetta represents a time of austerity for the people who lived it. It's a punchline in the States. Always has been. But things were very different in 1950s Germany. I only understand this because deep in my lizard brain, there's a story written by Peter Egan in 1993 that said as much. A red Toyota Super Turbo was on the cover of the March 1993 issue of Road and Track. It was the all-new fourth-generation car, and bubble-era Japanese sports cars were amazing, especially if you were 15. But the only thing I remember of that issue is the story of plans going wrong with a quirky 40-year-old car powered by a one-cylinder motorcycle engine. It was kind of fun to think about the Isetta again, and uh, I reread the story that I wrote on it. And uh, my friend Chris Beebe, who still owns the car, uh, just called today just to say hello, and uh, and we got talking about the trip and and uh, remembering the good times on the road. So it's uh, it's a nice uh, reminder. So how how did you know Chris? Like, what's the connection between you two? He owned a business called Foreign Car Specialists in Madison and Wisconsin, and um, I worked for him as a mechanic. Uh, I got out of journalism school in uh, 1971. After I came back from Vietnam, I finished up and and got out of journalism school, and um, I couldn't find a job uh, with a newspaper or doing any kind of a writing job. There were a lot of people looking for work right then because so many newspapers had been closing. And so uh, I just I fell back on my uh, primary interest anyway, which is cars, and uh, took a job as a as a mechanic at Foreign Car Specialists. So we I worked for Chris for uh, seven years as a mechanic, and we both raced cars together, and we co-drove a few racing cars. Uh, Chris raced a Lotus Seven, and I had a a Bug Eye Sprite and a Formula Ford, and uh, so we we're old old buddies. And then uh, Barb and I lived in California for 10 years, and then when we came back here, uh, we found the place we're living now. As Chris noticed that it was for sale, and I came, we came and looked at it and really liked it. So we now, uh, after all these years, we live uh, just down the road. Well, that's excellent. So um, I was surprised by my one trip to Wisconsin. I wound up in um, Mineral Springs. Not Mineral Springs, Mineral Point. Mineral Point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a charming town. I was out there to do an interview for uh, an unrelated uh, to journalism uh, job, but it, it's uh, it's not what I expected. Once you get down that way, there's lots of hills. <laughs> no, no, it's very hilly. There's a um, a big section of Wisconsin that's called the uh, Driftless Area, and it was unglaciated during the last glacial period. And so it's it's very hilly. It's almost like uh, 
people have compared it with the Ozarks or the Cotswolds in England or something. It's all steep hills and, you know, farms and cattle farms and um, winding roads. So it's a very nice place to live if you like sports cars and motorcycles. Yeah, that was a surprise. I did not expect that. <laughs> yeah, Mineral Point is a beautiful town. It's it's an old uh, lead mining town, and uh, it was originally that area was originally settled by Welsh uh, miners, and uh, a lot of the original buildings are still there. They made a lot of stone buildings out of um, sort of this tan sandstone that's down in the area. So it's it's uh, it's kind of a tourist attraction now. It it has a lot of nice bed and breakfast places and old hotels and restaurants and so on. Yes, yes. And then uh, on the way back to Milwaukee, I took a wrong turn and wound up in Janesville. So I got to see the the closed GM plant before I finally made it back to Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> took yeah, quite not, the quite as, not quite as scenic, but... Uh, no. Yeah, I got uh, to thinking, to remembering that article that you had written. Um, mm-hmm. Because now people know what the ISATA is a lot more than they did probably in the 90s and certainly in you know, the, the post-war period in America. I, I think that the American story of the post-war has captured everybody's imagination and that's tends to be the default. Mm-hmm. Post-war yes, Europe uh-huh. is different, you know, and, and, and you, you know, being of the, the baby boomer era or generation, um, you, you know, how did, how did you first find out about i said is has was that something you knew about in the 50s and 60s or did you yeah well i don't i probably did wasn't aware of them i mean they they were uh, unusual enough that i'm sure they appeared somewhere in a in a magazine you know in a life magazine story or something as background and and people i, I think when i was in grade school or at least when i was in eighth grade i knew what they were I hadn't seen one on the road anywhere. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and uh, there just weren't many foreign cars, period. And uh, I don't think I ever saw, and I said it until I got older. But uh, I started reading Road and Track magazine and Sports Car Graphic uh, when I was about 13. And uh, so, you know, there were pictures and articles, and uh, I got a lot more familiar with, uh, you know, with European cars. I sort of at that age, uh, right around eighth grade, I fell in love with sports cars and uh, racing and and the whole idea of having a, an unusual, fun, agile car. I turned 13 in 61, and I remember I picked up my first road and track magazine, and, um, you know, Phil Hill was winning the world championship for the U.S. and driving a, a Ferrari, shark-nosed Ferrari, and... Uh, of course, I was instantly captivated. Here's an American driving through the streets of Monaco in this beautiful car. And uh, Dan Gurney, of course, was successful and active. And uh, it was a good time for Americans uh, being involved in Formula One racing and Le Mans and so on. So I, I immediately just, uh, you know, read everything cover to cover from that age on as soon as I'd get my hands on a car magazine. Sure. Um, and then you wound up writing for Road and Track as well. And I think that's where a lot of our listeners, if they don't already know, uh, that's where you, you built a career. I started, uh, when I was working as a car mechanic, I, I, I wanted to uh, get back into journalism, and I thought I should, uh, I should somehow get some benefit out of having gone to school for four years in journalism. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I wrote a lot of stories, short stories and articles and so on. I didn't have much luck getting anything published. I, I had a, a pretty good pile of rejections. And um, and then finally, a friend of mine who was a motorcycle mechanic, Howard Sprengel, uh, told me, he said, instead of writing general short stories and fiction and so on, why don't you write about something you're really fascinated with? Why don't you write about cars or motorcycles? And I was... Uh, I had been racing cars for about six years and I got, uh, decided I wanted to try motorcycle road racing. So I, I had a Norton and a Honda 400 F and I started road racing motorcycles. And so I decided, um, to write a story for cycle world magazine. And, uh, the first story I wrote, I think was in, uh, 1977, 
And uh, Barb and I took our Norton Commando out to, we're headed for the West Coast and it broke down in Montana. And uh, we weren't able to fix it, so we had to ship it home in a Beacons moving van (laughs) and and take the rest of the trip by train and bus. And um, so I wrote a story about that, about, you know, being warned about not taking an older British bike across the country. And and, uh, I sent that into Cycle World magazine. And it was published, and it was a, a breakthrough for me. It was the first thing I ever got published, and then uh, I was 32 years old. So then uh, Alan Girdler, who was the editor at Cycle World magazine, said, well, if you've got anything else, uh, any other feature story ideas, we'd be interested to take a look at them. So I, I really got on uh, on the case and started uh, sort of generating story ideas and taking trips with uh, motorcycles. And um, I did a series of stories for Cycle World magazine, and they hired me in 1980. And Barb and I moved to California so I could work at Cycle World. And then uh, I worked there for three years, and Road and Track was upstairs in the same building. And um, they found out, you know, that a lot of the people at Road and Track, several of the older editors were real motorcycle buffs, and they would come down and hang out in my office and and I had pictures of race cars and so on. And, and they said, you should be writing something for road and track as well. And you were a car mechanic for seven years and you've raced several different kinds of cars. And um, so uh, road and track asked me to start writing for them as well. And I, I, I worked full time at road and track and part time. Uh, I started contributing columns to cycle world magazine. So for the 10 years we were in California, I, I worked three years full time for cycle world and, seven years for road and track. It's not, then, a um, not, not a bad way to do yeah, it. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, I, I had, uh, at the time I had no intention or no, I wasn't even thinking about looking for a job in a car magazine because cars in the late seventies were kind of, uh, not that interesting. They were having a lot of problems with, um, fuel injection and, uh, emission controls and so on. So I'd, I'd kind of turned my attention over to the motorcycle side of things. And, uh, but right about the time I got hired at Road and Track in 1983, things were starting to come back for cars. Uh, you know, small block Chevys were suddenly making more than 200 horsepower again, and this kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, they're getting fuel injection figured out and technology with cars. And it was actually a pretty interesting time to be working at uh, at both magazines, actually. Yeah. Well, and still to this day, you know, that whole narrative of being in the right place at the right time, it still works. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, no real formula to it. It's, it's just, no, I, I, I know I often reflect on that. It was just pure luck. Uh, first of all, um, you know, Alan Girdler, who was the editor at cycle world, liked my story and encouraged me to write, send in more stories. And, uh, I had sent the same story to, a. Uh, another magazine, a lesser cycle, motorcycle magazine, actually, it wasn't as widely published. And uh, I sent it to them because um, I thought they would be more likely to publish a touring story and they just rejected it. And I, I was very depressed because I had worked on it for about six months to try to get it publishable. And, uh, and then my friend of mine said, well, if you, uh, you know, don't get depressed about that. I mean, you've written the story, send it to another magazine. And I said, well, cycle world magazine is one of the big ones and they don't publish many. I, I subscribe to it, but they don't publish very many touring stories. And, uh, my friend Lee Hagelin said, well, what have you got to lose? Send it to them. And all they can do is reject it. And so I did. And, uh, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of timing involved there. I don't know if I could do it again, you know, get the right the people who like your work, uh, being there at the moment and, um, you know, and it just, uh, it's, uh, I'd have a hard time recreating the path that got me there. And, uh, I don't know what I'd be doing if I'd not been able to publish some motorcycle stories, but it was also lucky that cycle world was in the same building because I got to know all these road and track people who I had been reading for years. And uh, it was a very nice group of people at both magazines. It was like a, a great big family of enthusiasts and a uh, beautiful spot to work. It was uh, in Newport Beach, California, right on the bluffs overlooking the ocean. And uh, 
I thought, well, this is not bad. That's uh, better than all those jamokes at <laughs> car and drivers stuck on a uh, hogback road, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, I was, I was glad that I was glad that it was in California. I was, uh, the day they hired me, I was a little worn out with winter. I was, uh, I'd had a long day at the shop and, uh, you know, I was driving my, uh, my 68 Volkswagen and the heater didn't work very well. And it was freezing out and windy and snowing. And, uh, I came home late and I got a call asking if I wanted to work at cycle world. And it was, uh, it was a pretty nice moment for me. Yeah, you, know, you never forget that that kind of thing. But your friend Lee's advice was still solid. The worst they can do is say no. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of it is uh, is just being persistent. Also, uh, yeah, I did a lot of writing that didn't get published. I had a pretty. I wrote two novels that didn't get published, and many feature stories and short stories. And uh, you know, just kept you got to keep working, I guess, until something happens. Yeah, it's like an itch you have to scratch. Um, yeah, yeah. So I didn't mean to get us sidetracked. It's but it's it's great. I love to hear the the um, that the way everybody, especially since you know I started off even before I thought I could be a car writer. Reading your work, so mm -hmm. it's, it's just interesting to hear how how everybody's career is just this this combination of serendipity and grit. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the that's a lot of it's a lot of just to the people you know who you run into by accident uh, yeah <laughs> i've always it, said if you you know you can get up in the morning if you leave your front door and turn left you have you lead a completely different life than if you turned right that's, you know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not a bad philosophy um yeah yeah the internet loves weird cars and mm -hmm. i saw some of the people that I've run into by accident, um, as, as car people on Twitter, they, they posted an auction like eBay or one of the other sites for, and I said, mm -hmm. and it just, you know, it brought back to mind the, the story that you had written about your, your trip with Chris Beebe in this Iseta. Um, and mm -hmm. some of the, uh, some of the things we don't think about, um, when we think of the Iseta, that's just a, a fun, almost like a punchline here because it's a small little mm -hmm. car that's weird looking. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it means a lot. It means different things to different people. Yes, it certainly, yeah, it does. Uh, and I think you brought up when we talked the other day, you mentioned that Chris's friend Klaus, who is German, uh, when called up from Germany and said, Oh no, don't tell me you're restoring an Isetta. And Chris said he was, and he says, Oh no, you know, he said, you Americans find those amusing, but, uh, Germans don't have such a, a fond recollection of having to drive Isettas. You know, they were still digging out from uh, wartime and, uh, short on everything. Um, you know, materials and jobs and roads and, and, uh, he said, you know, for them, it was it's sort of reflecting uh, a hard time in their lives. And uh, whereas Americans were just thought, oh, this is wonderful. You know, we can give these away as a uh, as a free as a free prize for a contest or something. Or we can uh, I think I mentioned the story. Chris Beebe knew a friend who uh, who had one and said that. Uh, when he was, he drove it to school and the other kids picked it up and put it on top of the air conditioning unit. And, you know, it was sort of a, it was, Oh, what fun. You know, it's so small. We can do anything we want with this car. And, uh, he said the car was actually ruined in order to get it off the air conditioning unit. They used a sling through the windows and it, it wrecked the roof and bent the car. And, uh, yeah, you know, which was a sad, a sad end, but, uh, not you know not so funny and uh well of course the i said it came uh was first designed in italy and italy was probably as as poor or poorer than uh than germany after the war and they they were like uh all europeans they were looking for inexpensive transport and uh so i said in the story essentially they were looking for a a vespa or an, a you know lambretta with weather protection so they could get to work yeah. When, you know, on a rainy, a cold or rainy day. And, uh, 
and they worked, you know, they were pretty good little cars, really. There was a, a great way to get around without using a lot of, uh, a lot of gas. Well, that's right. With fuel being the other shortage at that point in Europe. And mm-hmm. I can, I can picture it on those European streets. I, I think it would be a real good time, <laughs> quite honestly, you know, speeds are low. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's anywhere. I mean, it's- it's a perfect car for European towns. They still have these medieval narrow streets and so on. And uh, when I got out of the army, I lived in Paris for uh, a winter. I just wanted to, I was bumming around Europe and I really liked Paris and stayed there. And uh, small French cars like the Duchevaux were just perfect for Paris because you could drive them right up on a curb and get them out of the way. So the road was open on these small back streets. And uh, if you saw a full-sized American car, you know, from the diplomatic corps or somebody who was wealthy and had a Lincoln or a a Cadillac or something, you'd say, Oh my God, that's huge. Where are they going to put that? And, um, so, you know, small cars really fit very well. They still fit well, um, in Europe. And, uh, Barb and I did a, a a trip through uh, England about four years ago and, uh, with a rental car, drove up to the Cotswolds and, and um, it struck me that British cars have gotten as big as American cars. People are driving uh, Range Rovers and, and large Jaguars and so on and uh, medium sized sedans, but um, they're big now. And Barb and I went there when we were first married in 1973 and rented a thousand CC mini and drove all over England. And it was, it was the perfect size for driving in England on the narrow roads, but uh, the roads have the roads and the streets haven't gotten any wider, but the cars are, are six inches wider now than they were in longer. And uh, nothing, nothing fits quite as well as it did. No, a, a modern mini uh, is, I, it looks small compared to other current cars, but boy, does it tower over an original. Yeah, it does. You have to see it next to an original to realize that it's uh, it's grown quite a bit. Um, so, how did you come to to take a trip uh, in the first place, to, or to be restoring the Isetta in in the first place? What was the genesis of the idea? Uh, Chris Beebe saw an ad for the uh, Isetta. I think it was in in Illinois. It might have been in North Chicago, and he bought it. It was disassembled. Somebody had started to restore it and just taken it all apart. And, uh, he bought it for a thousand dollars disassembled and, uh, it was a roller. I mean, I think the engine was out of it and a lot of the pieces, some of the interior was out, but the, the car was able to roll onto a trailer and, um, he brought it home. And as I said, he lives across the bridge from us across the Creek. And, uh, he has some doors that go into his basement, uh, sort of a little drive-in basement. And he and his wife just parked the Isetta next to their washer and dryer <laughs> in the basement. And uh, I think I said in the story, it, it, it fit in perfectly. It looked like it was related to the, to the washer and dryer. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I would see it down there. You know, it's, I'd go down there to help them move something and I'd say we we should fix that up and finally I suggested I said why don't we why don't we restore that thing and take a trip in it It would be fun to write about it and uh, so we worked on it for a couple of months together at his shop and uh, we took the you know we took it all apart the suspension and we didn't rebuild the engine the engine was okay Um, but structurally it needed a little help it needed repainting and um, it was just kind of beaten up but it was all there. It wasn't, it wasn't terribly rusty or anything. It was just straight car that was kind of worn out. And, um, so we spent a lot of time. I remember, uh, bead blasting all the suspension pieces at night and painting them, you know, spray painting the, the links for the suspension system and so on. And, um, we were originally planned to take it to, uh, the runoffs at road Atlanta, the SCCA annual sports car championships, and uh, we were actually on our way down there. We we were fighting against the clock to get the car done, to get down to the runoffs. And then we had some engine trouble in Rockford, Illinois, in northern Illinois at night. And uh, we had to stop and fix it. And uh, we got into a motel about 3 o'clock in the morning and 
we realized I looked at my watch and said, you know, we're never going to make it. If we drive, if we drive straight through to road Atlanta, we'll get there in time for the last race on Sunday. I said, we got to figure out someplace else to go with this thing. It's too far and we're too late. So we got up in the morning and looked at a map and uh, I said, let's go over to the Mississippi river and down through Hannibal, you know, Tom Sawyer country. And, uh, I'm a big blues music fan and I I've always liked Memphis a lot. I've been down there a few times and I said, let's just drive down to Memphis and, uh, you know, we can go through Hannibal and, uh, see the Tom Sawyer museum. And then we can go down to Memphis and go to Beale street and go out and see the Elvis museum. Maybe we'll see, uh, across from, uh, his home. Maybe we'll see a, a, an Isetta in the museum. So we just, we just diverted. We decided it was too late to go to Atlanta and uh, sort of went straight south. Elvis had a 507, which was sort of the, the other BMW they made at that time. <laughs> yeah, Elvis had a lot of unusual. I was surprised, in fact, that he didn't he didn't have one. In fact, uh, in the story, I said, if uh, when we pull up in front of Graceland, I said, if Elvis were alive today, he'd probably come come running out and buy this thing from us. And, and then we could, we, we could fly home yeah. <laughs> instead of driving, you know, 45 miles an hour back to Wisconsin. But uh, <laughs> we were, we were actually having a, a pretty good time in that car. It was, it was fun to be in it. Everybody was charmed by it and it ran fairly well. Most of the time we had, we had a few mechanical problems with it. And uh, Chris had decided that he had had one in uh I think his freshman year in college and he, he had remembered how slow it was. And he thought if he put a larger carburetor on it, maybe we could cruise at slightly higher speed or would have a little more hill climbing power. We had the 300 CC version. I think it's 295 uh, CCs. And, uh, and so he put a, a motorcycle carburetor on it, a Mikuni. Mm. I think it was a 32 millimeter carburetor. And, um, in order to to fit it on there, he used a he was trying to find something that would work as an intake manifold, and he found a piece of Peugeot radiator hose that fit in, and so he put that on, and it worked fine except that the hose would pulsate, it would pulse with the engine uh, intake, and uh, eventually crack the hose. So all the way down there, we were taping the hose and replacing it, and uh, you know it seemed like about every five hours of driving the hose would blow and the car would stop running and we'd have to, you know, cut another piece of hose and take the side panel off the engine and dig our way back in there and, and fix it. But other than that, we had very few problems with the car. It was, uh, that was our own doing really trying to hop it up a little bit. So what's it like, uh, to be in, and I'm assuming too, you were on roads like, um, you know, secondary roads, not highways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we stayed away from anything that resembled a, a fast uh, state highway or a, an interstate. And we took uh, we took all, uh, you know, all of the blue highways, as you'd say. It's all the back roads. And uh, it was actually kind of pleasant because the, the car would go, they're supposed to be able to go 52 miles an hour. People, the car is just slow enough. We were only able to cruise about 45 miles an hour, and the car was slow enough that it didn't really hold traffic up. People would, there was no doubt when you come up behind a, an Isetta that's going 45 that you can pass it. So people would just pass and wave and honk and, and you know, look in the rearview mirrors and, and give us a thumbs up or something. And uh, so we didn't really block traffic. And it was quite comfortable to ride in. The suspension is is very good. It's um, actually quite compliant and comfortable, and uh, so it just it just kind of motored along. And uh, the only shortcoming really with the car was that the, it was in the fall, and it was pretty cool in the north here when we left. And uh, the heater really doesn't do much of anything. It's a real small heater that just runs off, feeds air through the cooling fins on the engine like a Volkswagen except it's got, you know, a lot less uh, surface area than a Volkswagen. So we we weren't really able to tell that any heat was coming in with the air that was blowing into the cockpit. It was uh, it was pretty chilly. But once we got in the south, it was it was not a problem. It warmed up quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm assuming, too, once you, with all that glass, once you get in the sunlight, it's kind of like a, a little aquarium kind of heats yeah, up on its own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
It is. It is. It didn't have much space in it. You know, we had very, uh, I mean, it's just two seats and a luggage shelf behind the seats. And uh, so we each had a, essentially a real small duffel bag to take on the trip. I had a camera bag and a camera and that was about it. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Traveling light is, um, that's an art in itself too. You know, nothing but a a credit card and maybe a toothbrush. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun not to, not to have to wonder what you should take along or shouldn't take along because you just can't. So it's, uh, you just pack light and, and that's what we did, but it was, it was a good trip. It was, uh, we, we have all good memories of the trip. Except for you know having to fix the uh, the radiator hose intake manifold at night a couple of times, but uh, well, otherwise it was fun. Too, you know, while the engine is still still uh, you know has yeah just yeah yeah it was a little hard to get back in there. You have to work on the engine. There's a, a panel you remove on the right side of the right rear of the car, and you, there's not a lot of room to see in there. So we're, you're kind of working with a flashlight in your teeth, reaching back in there to try to fix things, but. Um, Anyway, but the engine ran all the way. It was uh, in the transmission, the clutch, everything worked on it. Brakes, you know, we didn't have any uh, any major mechanical problem. And Chris, in retrospect, said he thinks it would actually have been faster and gotten better mileage and everything with uh, with the original carburetor. He said that was not really a a great idea. It was probably a little bit over carbureted and a little less tractable. Sure. I think we I think we got about. Uh, 58 miles per gallon, something like that, which wasn't bad. Yeah, that's that's not too bad. It only has, what, two or three gallons uh, capacity in its tank? Yeah, three 3.5 gallon fuel tank. And uh, I think when the first 250, I read, uh, I just looked this up recently, I just to remind myself about production dates on Isetas, and they... Um, the site that I looked up said that the when the first 250 I said it came out, it set a world record for a a car and fuel. It got 98 miles per gallon, which was the you know a world record for anything that would haul two people and and be called a car. You know, have a, a body on it and a windshield and wipers and all that kind of thing. I mean, there are cars now that get almost that mileage. I, I had a Volkswagen, uh, one of the diesels that is now, you know, the, I, we had to give it back, sell it back to Volkswagen because it was part of the, mm. the diesel scandal. But that, that thing was getting uh, low 50s and had lots of power and torque and, so you know, it was very comfortable and had air conditioning and, and so on. So it's it's not as remarkable now as it, as it was then, but... Um, Mileage then, I mean, I I remember somebody in my hometown when I was in about, uh, I don't know, middle of high school, borrowed a Volkswagen from his uncle in Madison and came home. And he he told us he got 28 miles per gallon. And we just couldn't believe it. We had never heard of a car that got 28 miles per gallon. And I said, you got to be kidding. How can you get 28 miles? You know, my dad's Buick got seven Right. Uh, <laughs> Four times the fuel economy. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just slapping our foreheads at, at the thought of 28 miles per gallon. Now now I've got a Honda Ridgeline pickup truck that, you know, will get about 25 on the highway. So And um, it'll haul 5,000 pounds, too. It'll tow 5,000 pounds. Yes, right? yes. Yeah, and it has, uh, it has a radio and air conditioning and <laughs> sound system. And, <laughs> yeah, and it'll haul... Uh, it'll, It'll haul a motorcycle, which was more than the Volkswagen would do. I reread the story and I commented that it would be impossible to make this car now because it weighed, I think the weight was 800 pounds. And of course, no, I said no uh, civilized country on earth would allow a manufacturer to make something like this without any safety features or airbags or uh I said it'd be it'd be impossible to make this 800 pound car again and make something this efficient, even if you could put a modern drivetrain in it. But I'm not sure that the world doesn't still need that car. It's um, it seems in retrospect like it's not such a bad idea. Um, we have enough oil right now, but you know we're heating up the planet and. Uh, you know, and and wrecking the atmosphere, and so everybody's looking for ways to increase fuel mileage and get more efficient. And of course, we're getting a lot of electric cars now that are probably going to be the 
the answer, but um, there's something to be said for having a car that just gets you where you're going and doesn't uh, doesn't carry any extra weight or uh, cost a lot of money. You know, it's an affordable thing. And uh, I think some of the, you know, like the early Volkswagen and that car and the, and the Citroen Ducheveau um, were aiming for a, a goal that is still laudable today as far as uh, not occupying a lot of space and using a lot of material and burning a lot of gas. Yeah, well, I think we could look to China right now for for some of that. They've got this whole industry of uh, car electric cars that aren't that expensive and they're all basically the same. You know, they're stamped out from different different brands, but they're all basically mm-hmm. the same thing and they're just a little box on wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the writers for Jalopnik, um, Jason Torchinsky, he bought one and imported it. And I think it was it was less than two thousand dollars. And it's very much the same thing. There's no safety with it. You know, you don't wanna mm-hmm. you don't wanna get in a mm-hmm. crash, but uh, as something that gets you around town and, and, and takes you takes you where you need to go in a in a dense urban environment, it's really it's hard to beat that that consistent idea of just a small thing with a motor that that goes. Um, you know, and, and it being electric makes it pretty agnostic to whatever you want to fuel it with. So um, hopefully, yeah, as yeah. we figure out how to make uh, how to charge batteries without without you know gas or diesel or coal it'll still be viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think as we, uh, batteries keep improving and, uh, the range range keeps improving on electric vehicles. And then if we can combine that with a real effort to get more solar power, wind power, whatever, uh, it certainly will answer a lot of questions. I, uh, you know, I, I've spent my whole life working with internal combustion engines and building twin cam engines and racing engines and, uh, you know, that's sort of what I've done my whole life. But, uh, I, last year I went out to Colorado to visit friends and, and we went to a motorcycle shop and I took a ride on two different electric motorcycles that they had for sale. And, uh, I came back and the guy who ran the motorcycle shop said, well, what do you think of the spike? And I said, uh, I said, if they ever get range sufficient range out of an electric motorcycle and people get used to riding this i said it's got like three moving parts compared with an internal combustion engine you've got yeah you know you've got this simple engine and i said riding this thing makes uh, a a motorcycle with an internal combustion engine feel like a um I feel like a steam locomotive that's fed with coal or wood. I said, it's, uh, it's so it's a seamless, it's got torque from zero RPM up. It's quiet. It, um, it, you know, it's fast. Mm. I said, uh, and you think of the, the number of parts and the push rods and chains and bearings and valves and shims and so on that it takes to, you know, to make even a simple gasoline engine do this. I said, I, this is, um, it's a revelation, I think. And, uh, you know, we're all nostalgic for the sound and, and uh, feel of traditional engines and so on. But uh, I think there's a point where we may be able to enjoy those as, as kind of a, uh, a special thing and not have to depend on them all the time. I agree. I think that, um, you know, every time I get to, to try an electric car, I just, I love the experience. Because it's it's mm-hmm. exactly what you said. Um, they they feel really lively, um, and they're you know, generally quiet and smooth in a way that um, you know you do you do miss some of the the aspects of say a high performance car. But if it's just mm-hmm. you know something like a, a Chevy Bolt or something that's just a runabout, it, it doesn't really matter, and it's actually a lot more pleasant to to use the EV. You know, we all we all like older cars and sports cars and the history of, of racing and all that. And I certainly do. That's what I've done my whole life. But I, at this point, I would rather have a really efficient electric car and uh, and one 
fun thing, you know, an MGT Sierra Morgan or something that's genuine, <laughs> genuinely archaic uh, to, to sort of appreciate where we've come from. But I, I don't need to. Uh, I don't need to be working on one in order to get to the grocery store and back. I, I would just soon jump in something that's kind of uh, seamless and and efficient, and and then have you know my motorcycles and cars as a, a hobby thing where you go out for special occasions. Of course, I'm 73 years old, so that's that's where my interests are at right now. I still like old cars, but uh, I don't really want to restore a an older car now to drive daily on the road or anything. I'd rather have one just for kind of a a hobby. That's wisdom. That's. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> or, or else, or else I've restored one too many cars and my hands hurt. You know, right. I don't know <laughs> what is wisdom, what is wisdom or fatigue. But uh, I, maybe they're linked. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think they're the same thing. Maybe. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you commented when you. Um, I just want to square off a couple of points. Uh, one of the things you noted about the, I said it was how well made they are. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that, that I found um, I, my first first love as, the, as an enthusiast was air-cooled Volkswagens. And so it's the same mm -hmm. thing. A small, cheap car. Um, it's sort of an engineering tour de force. Beautifully made, though. All of the parts are, are just, they're little, they're gems. You know, they're just jewels. Uh, really yeah. Intricate. Yeah, they're nice pieces. It's... Um... And that was true of the Isetta too. It was, uh, I did a lot of work on the pieces on that car. Um, Chris and I were both busy when we were restoring the car. We would take a, apart the suspension or the steering apart or whatever, take the brake drums off and, uh, and go through them and bead blast things. And I was impressed all the way through the car. There was no, uh, there was no hidden cheapness there. Everything was nicely made. And, uh, of course, Germans are, are pretty good at that. Um, you know, there's, there's a high level of craftsmanship in Germany. And, uh, I think people, you know, e even sort of digging out of the ruins of the war were still inclined to do the best job they could on anything they designed or machined. And, um, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of the home of, uh, precision, <laughs> precision machinery. And, um, Along with or England at one time, England kind of lost the plot, I think, in the early 70s for precision. But anyway, <laughs> that's uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is coming from somebody who's mainly an English car fanatic. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the pieces were very nice in that car and uh, it was nice to work on. You know, you'd, uh, you'd look at a, a suspension arm and you'd say, this is, this is really, you know, very nicely made. It's nicely forged and it's got good bearings in it. And, uh, there was nothing, it wasn't, uh, you know, they didn't make a coal cart and put a motor in it, a lawnmower engine or something. It was, uh, it was actually a sophisticated car for its, uh, intention. Yeah. And that, that to me is, I think where, where a lot of the charm is, it's a, it's a purpose built thing and it, and it is almost an appliance, but it's, it's still fascinating to look at. And, and to yeah it is it's still i think it's still a good looking car people talk about it as a bubble car or that it's uh humorous in some way but it's also a very nice shape when you look at one you say they did a really nice job for you start with a uh you know a blank piece of paper and a drawing pencil and you come up with a shape that will enclose a couple of people and and carry a little bit of luggage and have an engine and steer and let you get in and out uh it's a very pleasant looking car. It's, uh, it's not just like something that was made out of necessity and, uh, is an eye, you know, it's not an eyesore. It doesn't look cheap. It, it looks like a, uh, a nice thing to have in your garage. And I, I think it still does. It did then probably and it. It's held up very well as a, as a design. I just love the, you know, the thought that went into everything that uh, articulating steering column before that front door. And it's, it's a neat thing to look at for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. People used to love it. We'd pull up in front of a cafe or something and, and open that front door and the steering wheel would come out with the front door and, and you know, the restaurant would almost empty out <laughs> uh, people, you know, you just see people st stop chewing their, uh, 
cheeseburgers or whatever and put them down. And a minute later, everybody's on the street looking at the Isetta. And, uh, yeah, so it was, <laughs> it was sort of God dropping, I guess is the, is the term. But, so does, uh, you said, um, Chris still has the car. Yes, he does. Uh-huh. Any... He, he sold his, he sold his business, uh, and he had a very nice building downtown Madison, an old bus station building that's right in the heart of campus. And, uh, with the money he got from selling his business, he built a very nice shop out in the country, which is about oh, 12 miles west of here. Uh, and um, he's got a lot of space there. He's, uh, and he's got quite a, quite a few cars still. He's got a small motorcycle collection, and uh, he's got a lot of the race cars that he, he owned over the years. And he's got the Isetta. It's still sitting there. We we haven't driven it for a long time. I, I don't know if he's used it lately or not. Uh, when the last time was he started up, but it still looks fine sitting there in the workshop. You see, that was going to be my next question is um, now that we've jogged everybody's memory, um, do, you, do you want to go take it for a second? Mm -hmm. <laughs> see yeah. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like, it'd be fun to get it out again. I don't know what the, Chris tends to keep things running. You know, if he's got something sitting in his workshop, it's not, it's not forgotten. And, uh, you know, with a dead battery and, and bad tires, he, uh, he kind of moves things around and keeps, keeps after them. And so it, it may, it may be fine. He, he started up, he's got an MGTB, which is the just immediate pre-war predecessor to the TC. And, uh, we needed that for some pictures this summer and all he had to do was uh, check the tire pressures and it started up and we drove it over here for some photographs. I, w I would guess the set is not quite that ready to go right now, but it's probably still in, in good shape. I, I would like to drive it with the original carburetor on it because I think, uh, you know, that was really our only worry when we were driving that car was we, we just kept blowing these, uh, <laughs> these radiator hoses that we we're using for uh, intake manifolds. And uh, I, I think probably the uh, the original carburetor, which was probably a Bing, I would imagine, being on a BMW, it, it probably was a little more linear in how it delivered power and uh, a little more tractable for going up through the gears. Uh, I think Chris may have put that back on the car. I'll have to ask him. Well, good. I've run through all of my, I think all of the, the points I wanted to hit, and I've kept you on the phone longer than I thought I would. So. Oh, that's all right. I was actually out of my workshop uh, doing some adjustments on a guitar, doing a neck adjustment. It was fun to fun to talk about the Isetta again. What's um, acoustic or electric? I've, it's an electric. It's a Gibson guitar, and I was just uh, doing a slight neck adjustment to it. It's, yeah. uh, we've got a garage band. Um that we've had for years and we we haven't played lately because of the virus but we uh we usually played about four gigs a year and uh we play a lot of sort of uh chicago blues and delta blues and old rolling stone songs and that, that kind of thing kind of a mixture of few country songs and uh but i've got i've got a corner of my workshop that is uh, set up to be a, a band corner with a sound system and drums. So the drummer doesn't have to constantly be moving drums when he comes out to practice. That's not too bad. You know, it's, it's funny. There are times where um, as a, a video editor in my career, I've had to wait on computers. And so I usually had my, um, my Squire Strat <laughs> next to the desk. Oh, you did. Uh -huh. um, and I would, you know, I would practice the minor pentatonics as I waited mm -hmm. for the, the progress bar to go across the screen. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, guitars are another thing like cars that, and, and all the gear that, that goes along with them. Um, it's, it's another rabbit hole to, to fall down. It is. I, I've always thought if, if, if I had to uh, write an autobiography, it would be something like uh, cars, guitars, and motorcycles. You know, it just, uh, that's, <laughs> that, that's where I spent a lot of time mental time and, uh, you know, thinking about things. And, uh, I've got a couple of acoustic guitars and a, a, a small collection of electric guitars, but I've, uh, I started playing guitar about the same time I got interested in cars and motorcycles and they, they seem to have just, uh, gone hand in hand somehow. Yeah. They so. all, they all kind of fit together. Uh, when you were in Memphis, did you get Pat to go by like, um, 
well, I'm, uh, you know, Ardent or any of the other sort of famous uh, studios. It was Sun was down there too, right? Sun and um... yeah, Sun. Uh, we did a Sun studio tour. I've done a couple of those. Uh, Barb and I, my wife Barbara and I, went down there a few years ago and did a tour. And and uh, I did a story for Cycle World about two years ago. Um, we went to, uh, Mark Hoyer, who's the editor at Cycle World magazine, is a, a really good guitar player and has a couple of guitars and amps. And uh, he always wanted to see the Mississippi Delta. So we uh, we did a, a trip with two Indian motorcycles mm. from Memphis to New Orleans. And I've I've sort of made a, a hobby almost of traveling in that part of the world. I love uh, I like the Mississippi Delta and I, uh, New Orleans is probably my favorite city. So I, any excuse I have to go down there and do a story, I, I've done about three travel stories that involve the Mississippi Delta and the Blues Trail and yeah, I and remember so on. one with so a, I, like what a sixty Cadillac or something at, at Mardi Gras. Yeah, yeah, I did a sixty-three Cadillac. Uh, that was the first time I really. Uh, well, I actually went down. I went down on a 400 F Honda. One of the first stories I did for cycle world was a trip from here to new Orleans on a, on a Honda 400 F, which was my race bike at the time. And I just took the number plates off and <laughs> took it on a trip. And, um, but I, uh, I've always enjoyed traveling down there and looking around and, uh, finding these old, uh, old blue sites and Beale street is always interesting. And there's a lot of music. Of course, new Orleans is the same way. It's, uh, good food and good music and lots of uh lots of spirit so it's it's a fun place to go i've done a lot of travel writing over the years and about probably about half of the stories i've done are somehow based on a musical journey um i did a story with a 53 cadillac for road and track uh called hank's last drive and uh or hank's last ride it was uh hank williams died in the Mm. in the back seat of his Cadillac on New Year's Eve, 1953, and uh, between 52 and 53. And uh, so I restored a, a 53 Cadillac and went with a friend of mine who's a musician. We, we went from Montgomery, Alabama, up to, uh, to Oak Hill, Virginia, and um, followed the route that Hank Williams took on his, his sort of his last trip, his last gig. And, uh, so I, I, it's sort of a good excuse to get out and drive somewhere you've never been and uh, do some exploring. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's fun fun to get out and it's a uh, it all fits together somehow when you say where can I take a motorcycle or a car trip? And I think I'll go go to Memphis or go to New Orleans. Well, all right. Let me let you get to your evening. I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with me. And, and Well, it's great talking to you. I enjoyed it. And uh, if you get out this way, give us a call and stop in or something and play guitar or whatever. 